2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Last Sunday we looked at God's exhortation to willingly pay the price of being involved in some form of Christian ministry and being willing to pay the cost of being a regular Christian, which is what I referred to all of us, and also the cost of doing battle with ourselves in order to become a mature, godly Christian. Today we will consider the Christian life in relation to priorities, playing by the rules, and rewards. So let's pray. Father, you are our God. You have done amazing things in saving us, bringing us out of darkness into light, continuing the process of transforming us. There is no question but that we could not do this on our own. So speak to us today. Use this, these scriptures to teach us or just remind us of things that we need to be reminded of for your name's sake. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin with priorities. Verse 4 of chapter 2. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Given the context, it seems obvious that this verse refers to believers who are in some kind of full-time Christian ministry, and that doesn't apply to most of us here today. And the purpose for these words is to show the importance of establishing and maintaining sensible priorities, and especially in relation to being single-minded, prepared, and ready to jump into action with a moment's notice. Why? Why are those things important? Why are priorities important? Because proper priorities are vital to carrying out the tasks of full-time ministry in a way that pleases God. However, as I've already said, most of us are not in full-time Christian ministry. And yet to live a godly life in thought, word, and deed, and to do that all the time, 
requires establishing and maintaining sensible priorities. The kind of priorities that help us maintain single-mindedness, preparedness, which I've talked a lot about over the years, and the ability to think godly, to speak godly, and to behave godly, regardless of the situation or the strength of the temptation that we're facing. And so we're going to look at the importance of living a sensibly prioritized Christian life. Back to verse 4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Or in other words, no believer, no Christian, involved in full-time Christian ministry, entangles himself or gets so involved in the affairs of everyday life that his entanglements restrict his ability to carry out his duties. So that's quite a statement to apply to the rest of us. But Paul himself supported himself by making tents. Was that an entanglement? Or did he prioritize his time well enough to keep his tent making from interfering with his work as a missionary and giving oversight to a number of churches? Besides writing these letters. It's my belief that Paul maintained the kind of priorities that enabled him to make the best use of his time so that his income-producing activities did not hinder his ministry duties. And that kind of prioritizing is what I'm encouraging each of us, you, to develop and maintain in order to make measurable and commendable progress in living a godly life and in loving those around you as you ought to love them. Now, admittedly, this is not as easy to do as it is to say. It's a lot easier to say these things than to live this way. Because most of the children and all of the adults here today are already entangled in the affairs of everyday life. We're already pulled in. Consider this. The young people are entangled in things like schoolwork, chores around the house, playtime, hobbies, reading for pleasure, video games, just to name a few. The adults are entangled in things like household chores, caring for their homes, yard, and vehicles, cutting the grass, painting the walls, fixing things that break. The adults are entangled in raising children, earning income, shopping, exercising, socializing, socializing with extended family members and friends, just to name some of the socialization that we do, and helping those who need our help. And these lists, which admittedly are far from exhaustive, do not include things like personal hygiene, sleep time, computer time, phone calls, and the many things that unexpectedly intrude in our time. And I do want to be clear about this. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with the things on these lists that I just read. Many of them are necessary involvements 
and they're beneficial to our well-being and some of them are even the godly right thing to do. So the challenge is not the lists. It's not the things that we have to do or that we think we have to do or that are before us to do. The challenge is the priority of the things on the list. Which raises the question, what priorities are at the top of your list? And what is your number one priority? To me, this is important because who or what is at the top of your list affects how you prioritize the rest of the things on your list. You may not realize that, but that's the case. And that raises two questions. The first one, because we're believers and this is a church service, first one is important. Is God the number one priority on your list? Is he the supreme being in your life? Not just when you need him or when nothing else is more pressing, but all the time. I first began to think about this when I began to think about the word supreme. He's the supreme being. That's what God, by the way, God is. He's the supreme being. That's why he got the name God. What does supreme mean over all, before all? More important than all. Yeah, he's supreme. Second question is, have you made pleasing God a priority? I know that we make believing in God a priority. But have you made pleasing God a priority? The reality is, If you will make God the supreme priority on your list of things to do, you will find it much easier to prioritize the rest of your list in ways that protect time for making measurable and commendable progress in living a godly life and in loving those around you as you ought. Men tend to be product-oriented. This is a generalization, so bear with me. Women tend to be relationship-oriented. Now, we put them together in marriage, right? And the guy wants to get things done, and the lady wants a relationship. How does that work out? Well, sad to say, it doesn't always work out as well as we'd like. Those of us who are men, we think the wife is not interested in all these things that have to be done, And the wife thinks the husband is not as interested in loving her as she wants to be loved. What's the priority? Should not love be the priority? And if we are believers, should not God be the priority? And if, if God is the priority, doesn't he say to me, husband, love your wife as Christ loves the church? You see, if I make God the supreme being, if I put him at the top of my list, then he will influence, that will influence, how I prioritize the rest of the list. I do realize that much more can be said about this issue, but for the sake of time and in an effort to promote thinking, self-evaluation, prayer, 
and Bible study on your part. So I'm not answering this just for you or giving you my perspective. I'm urging you to seek your own understanding in this. In an effort to do that, then I want to conclude this portion of our teaching today with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. I have this scripture on my wall right across from where I sit because I want to see it on a regular basis. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. That's the priority, winning. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Not just some things, not just on practice day or on race day, but in all things. What we eat, the sleep we get, how we exercise, who we associate with, what we get involved with, apart from our focus on winning. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, something that's not going to last. But we do it to receive an imperishable reward wreath. You see, if we are committed to winning, then we will know how to prioritize everything else. And the first statement sets us up. Run in such a way that you may win. And the second statement lets us know what's the result. The result is we will exercise self-control in all things. And then Paul gives a personal example. Therefore, verse 26, I run in such a way as not without aim. I'm not just running helter-skelter here and there. I've got a goal and I'm headed towards the goal. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I'm not just flailing away. I'm not just throwing punches I'm looking to land each punch. Each punch has an intention to it. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So it's my desire that God and pleasing him would be the two priorities that influence how we prioritize the rest of the things in our list of things to do. Playing by the rules, verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. There are those who... Do not think we need to take this verse too seriously because, after all, we are saved by grace. However, I want to remind you, at least, this is how I see God's word. God's word is not as accommodating to that particular perspective as those who hold it think it is. The reality is, verse 5 is not an exaggeration meant to scare us into compliance but rather it presents a truth that we ought to pay attention to. And the first reason to take it seriously is the imagery used. 
We are being compared to an athlete who is competing in the Olympics, or at least in a competition that is at that level. Paul is not talking about your backyard or junior high competition, but serious competition. And in his day, anybody who entered that level of games, the Olympics, had to put their name on a piece of paper that gave their word that they had trained according to the rules. It just boggles my mind that they had rules for training and just to be in the games, to be able to compete, you had to promise, swear, give your word that you even trained according to the rules. In our day, an Olympic athlete has to submit to blood and urine tests to ensure that he hasn't used illegal drugs to gain an advantage. Why? Because gaining such an advantage is against the rules, just as much as cheating during the event is against the rules. And breaking the rules results in disqualification. And by the way, uh, I can't think of the fellow's name, but there was a well-known bicyclist who would win the the uh, bicycling events in France, Lance Armstrong. Not only was he disqualified, his name has been stricken from the records. It's as if he didn't exist in relation to those competitions. That's what disqualification means. A second reason to take this verse seriously is the warning found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 through 5, regarding Christian ministers who lead their followers astray by misrepresenting the word of God. And though these ministers, according to that scripture, don't lose their salvation, they do lose any rewards that they might have been given had they accurately taught the word of God. And you might recall the phrase that it became very popular in Christian circles, at least in the 60s in my era, uh, saved as though by fire. And we began to apply that phrase to all believers. But if you go back and read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in that section, Paul is applying that phrase just to people in ministry. Well, if Christian ministers need to play by the rules, we can be assured that the rest of us do too. A third reason to take this verse seriously comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived, we are told. God is not mocked. You can't laugh in his face. You can't do what you want and get away with murder, so to speak. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You can't break the rules of nature. If you sow a seed of corn, you will get a corn plant. A tomato will not come up. You can't break the rules of nature. A fourth reason is the blessings and curses found in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which provides clear and practical examples of what happens to us individually and as a nation when we play by the rules, that is, keep God's laws, or when we break the rules, that is, disobey God's laws. And that's just the beginning. Other examples from Scripture of rules 
that when kept bring reward and when broken bring loss. One of those is the rule of receiving the gift of eternal life. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the side that's basically taught in much of evangelism. But there's the second part to that verse. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And Jesus affirmed this perspective in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the rule. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name perform many miracles? We thought we were playing by the rules they're going to tell God. We thought we were doing what the rules said. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The reality was they weren't playing by the rules. There's rules for receiving mercy, forgiveness, and material blessings from God. The scripture says the merciful will receive mercy, Matthew 5, 7. Those who forgive will be forgiven, but those who do not forgive will not be forgiven, Matthew 6, 14 and 15. And those who give generously will receive generously from the Lord, Luke 6, 38. There's a rule for knowing and experiencing God's presence with and in us. I know that many of us want to have that experience of God's presence. We want to feel it. We want to know it. Well, here's what Jesus said about that. This, in essence, is the rule. John 14, 21 and 23. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose, will reveal myself to him. And verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home in him. You want to know the presence of God? That's a good way to do it. That's the rule. There's a rule for receiving rewards in the next life that lasts for eternity. Those rewards can never be removed, taken away from you. And this rule comes from Jesus' parable about the talents. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And as you may recall, Jesus told the story about the king who was going away and he gave one of his servants uh, 10 or 5, depending which story you're reading, but a number of talents, a second servant, a few less, and the Third servant, one. And the fellow who received one hid it in the ground. He didn't use it to enhance the kingdom. Well, I would like to add the idea that God has not just given us talents or abilities, but we might use that word talents to include, this is my addition, our possessions and time. Our assets. And those who did not use their abilities, their assets, their possessions, and time to build God's kingdom while living in this world lost out on rewards in the next. The important truth in all of this is if we are going to be given 
the gift of eternal life, if we are going to walk with God and enjoy his presence in this life, if we are going to receive God's blessings in this life and receive eternal rewards in the next, then like the athlete who's going into the contest, we have to play by the rules. It takes nothing away from God's grace, nothing away from God's empowerment, God's help. It takes nothing away from God. But it means we still have to play by the rules. And the wonderful reality of this is righteousness. Righteousness in thought, word, and deed has its rewards. Both in this life and the next. While unrighteousness, though seemingly rewarding at first, and I acknowledge that that's the case, unrighteousness brings suffering, loss, destruction, and death. And this brings us to the third and final topic in today's teaching, rewards. The hard-working farmer, hard-working farmer, not the lazy farmer, not the casual, but the hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. The hard work of living a godly life pays off. Just as the hard work of doing well in school or in your marriage or at work pays off. It's a principle that's true regardless. But here, the scriptures are applying it to us. God will reward us in this life and the next if we will believe in and rely on and proceed forward in making use of his empowerment and his help to bear the burdens and pay the price of growing in godliness, of advancing in spiritual maturity, and in being a Christian witness. One of the things that was mentioned during worship was, in my words, uh, the idea of relief. When hard times come, our nature is to want relief. The way of God is to face it and go through it. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Why? Because that's what helps transform us. And if we will put in the hard work, we will reap the rewards. It isn't just, oh, I've got to suffer through this. We count it joy because we know something really good, valuable, worthwhile is going to come out of it. Not just because God is going to bring good out of it, but because God is transforming us through that process. And the more we are transformed, the more you discover how good God and life really is in spite of how bad it is. God will reward us for helping others learn and grow by passing on to them what we have learned and know. It goes back a couple Sundays. If we will do that, we will experience God's rewards in our life. God will reward us for persevering in and bearing the cost of doing battle with ourselves in order to remove what ought not to be in us and put Christ-likeness in its place. And God will reward us for establishing and maintaining godly priorities. You know, it isn't what we have to do. It's what would be wise to do. 
The reality is God rewards everyone who lives the Christian life according to the rules he established for living such a life. Go back to the blessings and curses. That was one of the first really clear statements from God about this very reality. Some of these rewards that God gives are ours to be enjoyed in this life, not just the next. But it's also true that others can only be enjoyed in the next. They have treasure in heaven. And though there isn't time for an exhaustive list, let me mention just a few rewards that money cannot buy. These are priceless, in my opinion. And... Personal effort cannot gain. You can't gain these kind of rewards apart from God's empowerment and help. To me, one of the really valuable rewards is inward peace. To have peace inside. To be at peace inside. And to have a settled joy regardless of the circumstances. That is a priceless reward. Peace and joy. One of the rewards is a settled faith that knows you are safe in God's hands. To have that confidence, to to have that, your mindset, just makes inward peace and joy all the more real. Another reward is the reward of comfort and sorrow. I know it's unseen comfort. It's not like a friend coming and putting his or her arm around you. But it is the comfort of God and his presence, his spirit and the truth of his words. Comfort in sorrow, security in God's justice when being treated unjustly. Think about Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He wasn't just enduring the cross. He knew what would come. There would be reward at the end of it all. And wisdom when asked for. That is a precious reward. Who knows more than God? Who is wiser than God? Who is more able to know the the path and the ways through life than God? He sees all. He knows all. And we can ask. And receive that wisdom. And be rewarded as a result of it. Sometimes we do want to diminish the part that God-given rewards can play in our lives. I think we should not do that. I totally agree. I believe completely that we ought to be motivated by love. We ought to be motivated for God's sake. What is in this for God? We ought to be motivated for the good of others. But rewards are a legitimate motivation. The scriptures teach this. Let us not diminish that or ignore that. And so my encouragement to us is may we never forget that the hard work of pursuing godliness and living a Christian life pays off. Let's not do it For the payoff, that becomes self-serving. But let us remember it does pay off. 
both in this life and the next. Paul concludes this section of 2 Timothy chapter 2 by saying in verse 7, Consider what I say, that is, consider what I've said in verses 1 through 6. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And in this context, to consider what Paul is saying is to carefully examine it, to think about it and ponder its meaning and significance for living the Christian life, and to seek understanding as to how you can apply it to your life in the most practical ways possible. This is not just about understanding information. It's about understanding what to do with that information as well as understanding the information. We can gain knowledge. What we need also with the knowledge is what to do with the knowledge. How to make it real in our lives. Obviously, this takes time and effort. You can't consider, take the time to really examine what Paul has said in verses 1 through 6, or in any other portion of Scripture, or what God is saying or doing in your life, without putting in the time and effort. And so, I want to just wrap up with words from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 2 through 6, because these give us some idea how to go about considering something like verses 1 through 6. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. The first thing to do is make your ear attentive to wisdom. There is a difference between worldly thinking and godly thinking, between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. So the first thing to do is make your ear attentive to wisdom, God's wisdom. The second thing to do is incline your heart to understanding, want to understand. It may take you quite a while to understand. It may not come easy. You may have to work at it for a day, a week, a year. But incline your heart. Have it be something that's from within, that you want to understand. You should also be praying for discernment and insight if you want to understand. And third, if you cry for discernment, Or would you cry to God himself, at least? If you cry for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, and if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, in other words, you don't just dabble at this, you very seriously go after it. Then, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Yes, it takes time, it takes effort, but there is a payoff. It's another reward. For the Lord gives wisdom, and and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 